Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Our journey continues as we move into the prophetic book of Joel. Joel is one of what's called the minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're less important, but because they're shorter. So 12 minor prophets were gathered together to constitute one book, whereas the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, are called the major prophets because each of those writes enough for it to be a separate book on its own. Joel is a prophet in the divided kingdom of Judah, so the southern kingdom. He focuses both his um, judgment and his restoration prophecies on Jerusalem. So he clearly sees Jerusalem as the center of life and faith and worship of God's people. Dating this book is a really difficult task. Unlike most of the other prophets, he doesn't mention any kings. So we can't locate it during the reign of kings to try to figure out where and when he was ministering. Some think it was during the time of Athaliah, Judah's only queen. Um, And because he didn't consider her legitimate, he's not going to list her as the ruler and the leader. Others think it might have been during the time of her grandson, who um, actually followed her, but he came to power so young that he he wasn't really the one who was leading. The priest Jehoiada, who, with whom he was hidden for a few years before Jehoiada staged a coup and put him in power, it may be that Joel doesn't see Jehoiada the priest as being the ruler, even though he's really the one who is ruling. He doesn't see the child as a legitimate ruler, and he also doesn't see Athaliah before him as the ruler, so he just doesn't mention any rulers. Um, We can't be sure about that, but that's our best guess. He does, however, mention priests, the temple, and details of rituals. So the temple is still standing and worship is occurring. He also mentions a number of nations, including Phoenicia, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom. So scholars place this book, by our best guess, around 835 B.C. or shortly thereafter. This would make him one of the earliest prophets um, who is ministering and a contemporary of Elisha. He focuses his judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah and especially talks about the day of the Lord, his writings are some of the most influential on both the Jewish and the Christian ideas around a time of ultimate judgment. Okay. Um, This is going to be an ongoing pattern that we see of devastation by a foreign army, oppression that leads to an outcry from the people, repentance, and then divine deliverance. We saw this pattern begin way back in the book of Judges. 
The turning point of this book is going to come in chapter two, but there are three movements to the book. The first one talks about the desolation. So this would be the devastation and the oppression part of the cycle that happens from chapter one to chapter two, verse 11. We then have the outcry and call for repentance, which is also called exhortation. That's the second movement, and it happens in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and that is the turning point of the book. And then we have the restoration or the divine deliverance, which is the third movement in chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, 21. Moving into the first chapter, this is the only place in the Bible where Joel's name appears. The, it says that the prophetic word comes to him. This is the typical way of saying that God has spoken to the prophet and given the prophet what he should say, what he or she should say. We do actually have some female prophets, just none of them who are the authors of the books that we have in the Bible. From verse 1, chapter 2 through chapter 2, 17, we have graphic images of war and the effects of a locust plague. The prophecies come in the poetic form. There's a really strong connection between the arts and prophecy. A lot of times the prophets are moving with music, with poetry, and often that poetry is set to music as songs. There's highly descriptive language, and there's even a good bit of performance art as they act out um, the things that they are hearing to give very tangible and very visual examples Um, We see this reflected in Jesus' teaching as he looks around and takes examples from everyday life to use as parables as part of the teaching. In verses 2 through 12, we have total destruction that comes by locusts. Um, He says it is some to the extent that has never been seen by past generations and that future generations will always remember the total devastation that comes by the locusts that operate now. Now, we can't be sure how many locusts we have. Most translations refer to four locusts. Um, Some, it could be four stages of locust or it could be four different species of locust. In most translations, they're referred to as cutting, swarming, hopping, and destroying. In the King James Version, they're referred to as the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar. Um, The palmer worm was the larva of a moth that has a wingspan of about 15 to 18 millimeters, and they skeletonized leaves. So they would eat all the tender green parts and leave the structure kind of hanging. They are in wing, or in other words, they have their wings and are flying from April to October. They're currently only found in North America, and outbreaks usually happen when there have been incredibly hot, dry springs. The canker worm is also um, only found here in North America now. They're active in the fall. Um, They also are the larvae of a moth that grows to be about an inch long. The females are actually wingless, and they have a looping, very odd and distinctive flying pattern. Um, So we're not sure exactly why the King James chooses these translation words for this. Literally, if we take the words that are given in the original language, we have a gnaw, a swarmer, a licker, and a consumer. 
Um, so this could again be four species or four stages. The worm chews the leaves, the mature swarms because it has wings and covers everything and eats what it finds. Then once the swarming is over, they primarily hop and then they have late life. The destroyer is the late life where they're mating and reproducing. So again, we can't be sure, but we know that all, um, all life is involved with this and that every agricultural product is impacted. The grain, the grapes, and the olives, so all of their major crops, as well as all of creation, the fields, the soil, the humans, and the wild beasts. So the devastation, the locust coming, sets in play a chain of events that leads to famine and death. Famine also means that there are no offerings to come to the temple. So the sacrificial system begins to cease, as does joyful worship. In verses 13 through 20, there's a call to repentance and prayer. Um, it comes to the religious leaders in verse 13, the priests and the ministers, but it also comes to the civil authorities in verse 14, to the elders or the clan leaders. So this is societal-wide. Everybody's called to be a part of a communal fast pursuing repentance. In verse 15, we have the very first mention of the day of the Lord, and we have a name for God that's translated Almighty most of the time, and it is the Hebrew word Shaddai. It's not the most common word used to refer to God. In chapter 2, we have a mention of a trumpet. This would be the ram's horn or the shofar, which is blown um, to alert to imminent danger or to call people to dramatic attention. It was blown before going into battle. It was blown to announce feasts. Um, So it was to draw attention. Make sure you don't miss this. And then we have the mentioning of the day of the Lord, which is characterized by destruction and grief. Um, You can see this also in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. The day of the Lord is going to bring deliverance and joy, but first it brings destruction and grief because it brings judgment upon those um, who have been disobedient to God. We have darkness mentioned in verse 2. The invading armies come with a very common picture. It's very similar to the way the locusts were portrayed. They swarm over walls and houses and into windows. They spread upon the mountains and come. What's interesting is that instead of eating, they burn, but they swarm in. So now an invading army swarms like an army of locusts, and the darkness covers the land. The darkness is not just physical, it's also emotional. So the darkness comes over the land, it comes over the people, and it also comes over their soul. And so a darkness settles over all of them. The invaders are are portrayed as being led by the Lord. Um, This is Yahweh, the proper name of God, which is often translated in our Bibles with the Lord in all capital letters. He's portrayed as being the head of their army in verse 11, um, reminding us that these invading armies are an instrument in the hand of God for bringing judgment on God's disobedient people. Uh, In other words, God uses everything that happens um, to enact and 
um, create his will and obedience in his people. In verse 10, the language is very similar to that of Matthew chapter 24, 29 and Isaiah 13, 10. There are cosmic implications to the day of the Lord, and they're not just local, they are planetary. In verses 12 through 17, Um, The call to repentance comes, return with all your heart. This echoes Deuteronomy 6, 5, which is called the Shema, which is a call to love the Lord your God with all all your heart, soul, and mind. Um, In other words, a totality of being that is submitted to and committed to the Lord. There is lamenting language and action, fasting, weeping, mourning, and rending, um, and they're told to rend their heart, not their clothes. So they're not just to go through the motions. This has to be more than motions. They have to mean it. You can see more about this in Psalm 51, verse 17 in particular, but in the Psalm that David writes as he genuinely repents from his affair with Bathsheba and all that follows from it. In verse 13, we have a very common confession of God's nature that is found often in Scripture, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. The hope is here that God may change His mind, and that's grounded in God's very nature, in God's covenant faithfulness. We also see that God will not be manipulated or tricked. There's either true repentance or there's not. Cross-reference this with Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 103, 8, and Jonah 4, 2. Beginning in chapter 2, 18, um, all the way through the end of the book, we see that God responds and restoration is experienced. In verses 18 through 27 of chapter 2, we see that true repentance moves God and God restores the land, the people, and the animals. In verse 23, it talks about the rains, and there were two rainy seasons in which rain fell abundantly. There were the early rains, which come in late October and early November, and the latter rains, which come in late March or early April. The early rains softened the ground that has been baked by the blistering heat of summer. The latter rain caused the grain to ripen. So you need the early rain to soften the ground so that you could even sow the seed. You need the latter rain so that you can have a harvest. If there's no softening of the ground, the seed can't get into the ground. If there's no latter rain, the seed and growth cannot burst back out of the ground. So they're necessary and connected. Verse 25 connects restoration to the locusts and the invading army. It's actually one of my very favorite verses in Scripture, this idea that God makes up for what is lost. We often think that when we fall away from God, when we miss an opportunity, when we run in rebellion, that it is wasted time. Um, But God never wastes anything. When we return to God, when we come back into faithfulness, when we begin to listen and obey, God makes up for all that is lost. He uses even our time of rebellion and disobedience to bring us to a place of fruitfulness. Nothing is ever wasted. It's simply growth and maturity and learning opportunities. It doesn't mean that we should look for and embrace rebellion, but it's that we should not have lingering and ongoing guilt for what we have already repented of and come back to. In um, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, 
This is echoed in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter appeals to this prophecy in his Pentecost sermon. God acts in an all-encompassing way that shatters barriers around age, gender, and social status. Um, when God's kingdom comes, when the, the reign of God happens, then all of these differences around our gender, our age, and our social status evaporate, and we are truly all one and equal in God's eyes and in God's kingdom. And the people of Jesus' time, the disciples and the New Testament church, clearly see this as having happened in Jesus' life. God's kingdom was inaugurated. It is ushered in with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, we in the church, the believers who follow, we should look like and act like this ideal kingdom. There should already be an erasure of barriers around age, gender, and social status within the church, with which we reflect the kingdom of God. Even though it hasn't come in its fullness yet, it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. Um, so this day of the Lord and this restoration that comes is accompanied by some familiar cosmic signs of God's activity. There's a significant shift in the entire world, including creation when the day of the Lord, when the kingdom of God comes. Remember that the sky was darkened and graves burst open when Jesus was crucified. So that tells us that those disciples hearkened back to this and saw this as being the incoming of the kingdom of God. The mention of columns of fire and smoke herald back to the wilderness days of God's people, where God led them by a, a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. In verse 32, we see that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 32b, we see um, a seed that has become part of a lot of the ideology um, of end times, which is called eschatology. There's a, a series of books called the Left Behind series that you might be familiar with. Um, in those books, people are being saved even after a rapture event. Now, other Christians think that when the rapture happens, the time where you could choose God is over and that it's only judgment from there on. So that segment of the Christian community is divided. As Methodist Christians, we don't have a rapture event. There's no rapture in John Wesley's theology. We're waiting for the return, for the second coming of Jesus, but not for a rapture, which is a sudden removal of all believers from the earth, an escape from um, the things that, that come after. We just don't, we're not looking for a supernatural removal of believers. We're looking for a supernatural return of God and for a supernatural empowerment by the Holy Spirit to walk through whatever lies before us during our lifetime. The Hebrew text divides this book differently. There are four chapters to Joel in the Hebrew text. Chapter three consisted of, um, chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And then, so what we have as chapter 3, verse 1, is chapter 4, verse 1 in the Hebrew. So we move into the final chapter, and we see that 
the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem are mentioned. This implies that, in fact, the prophet is operating during the time of the divided kingdom, as we thought. Um, We have the name Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, as a name, means God judges. Um, Valley means a low place. So the prophet Joel is most likely not referring to a person um, or to a particular city or place, but rather it's a way of referring to whatever place it is that God comes to and judges. The nations are judged. We see that people groups are going to answer for the actions that they have chosen. We have more prophetic poetry in verses 9 through 21. Um, Isaiah 2.4 and Micah 4.3 interplay with part of this here. We're told at one point that farm tools, um, that weapons are beaten into farm tools. And then we're also told in, in prophets that farm tools become weapons. So is this idea of a time of peace becoming a time of war and a time of war becoming a time of peace? Here we see a coming time of peace. In verses 17 through 21, we have a good summary to how it all ends when God restores everything. There's a glorious future which Joel sees for the nation of Judah. We see the centrality of Zion, the city of David or the city of God, and of Jerusalem, the larger city and the temple mount. We see the fertility of the land, the devastation of the enemies who would come against them, which give peace. And we see that the physical environment reflects the spiritual reality. So there's this total restoration. Um, and it ends with an assurance of God's justice. So this is the, the writings and the work of the prophet Joel. And hopefully you can see how this short little book has been pretty impactful to the ideology of um, Christianity and of our Christian faith. Oh, 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 oh,